I would like to take our Bibles this morning. I want to head towards the Old Testament. We're headed to a small book. It's the book of Jonah. It's one that you're familiar with. You uh, have know a lot of the story, but it fits in with what I want to talk about today. Today I'd like to talk about March Madness. Now I know a lot of us are getting excited because here we come. You know, we just got over the football season and now we have a new season at hand. We're going to hear all about these exciting teams and games. And for some of you, it becomes just something that you follow along and you follow through, and, and it's exciting. And there is highs and lows within that, that tournament. There are the exciting conclusions. There's the Cinderella stories. There's those, those all kinds of different facets of that March Madness that are enthusiastic and fun. And I personally, I enjoy watching the college basketball during this season a lot more than I enjoy the professional games. My brother-in-law put it this way. He said the NBA, should, what they should do with those teams is every game should be just two minutes. Give them each 100 points and let them play the last two minutes. That's the, the, the March, the college teams, it's just totally different. It's exciting. But for us here at this church, our March Madness is a little bit different. We've started this several years ago. We started missions conferences back in 89. It was the first time that we did one. And uh, since then, we have had some unusual missions conferences. We've had some snowed out. We have had some where the power has gone out. We've had two times where the speakers at the conference ended up in the hospital with appendectomies. I remember one time we were, had this special speaker that we flew in from Japan. He's up here, actually was in the other building. He's ready to preach and I just got a note from the ushers. I ran out, called somebody, came back in, said, I gotta stop you preaching. He said, what? And it's like, sorry, you came all the way from Japan, but we have a sleet storm moving from Hershey this way. We gotta get everybody out of here now. And uh, so we've had those occasions. We've had some really high times and we've had some exciting times. We've uh, made part of our missions focus in the last few years, the whole month we do our sacrificial Sunday. You've been generous. You've given to that. That's been, been impacting and exciting. And so our missions conference is coming up. I, I will admit, there are some low moments. I, I think of the low moments of somebody coming to me in our membership who just said, I hate missions month because we, should, we talk too much about getting people saved. Uh, that was a low moment. That was a low moment, and um, the low moment that somebody came and said, you know, we, uh, we shouldn't be focusing on people around the world. We've got enough problems in the United States. Uh, that's not the mind of Christ. When we go to scriptures, the reason that we do the conference as much as it does drain a lot of you, it's a busy time, but Jesus said this. Jesus said the passage we read, he focuses and tells us to lift up our eyes, look under the fields, they are white already to harvest. He challenges us. He says that he's resurrected, he suffered, he rose again the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among not just the United States but all nations. All nations beginning at Jerusalem and spreading out, we are witnesses of these things. The Lord said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And he's giving us that commission, that command. In fact, in Mark it reads, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when they started going, he promised them that you will receive the power of the Holy Ghost when he comes upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So why do we do this? 
because God commands it. God encourages us. God tells us we're to be witnesses to everybody of His greatness and of His goodness. In fact, this isn't limited to just the New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, the Jews were to be a beacon. They forgot about that. They were satisfied to gather in their, in their temple worship, to gather in their separate little quarters, and they were, they were excited to be together on the Sabbath day, but they forgot <coughs> that they had a responsibility to carry out the gospel to all nations, to make an impact around the world. Even though they might have been stuck in some little village like Galilee or some little town like Nazareth, they were told to try to reach out to the ends of the world, to try to make an impact. There's one story in the Old Testament that God gives an entire book to this thought, and it's the one that you know well. You've heard about it since you're a child. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you heard about Jonah. Everybody knows about two different Bible stories, that is David and Goliath and Jonah being swallowed by a whale. And so we want to look at the whole book this morning in just a cursory fashion and just to get an idea of challenge as we embark upon this missions focus this month. Well, I want to think about and talk about this idea of Jonah. And I know that the, the thought that many of you is, well, answer the questions about the whale. Why does the whale become the celebrity in this story? Why does it get all the press? Why does the whale become the main character when really it's not even known whether it be a whale? The scripture just says it's a big fish, a great fish that God had prepared. And there, some will get into all kinds of discussions and there's documented proof that people did get swallowed by whales and survived for a few days. We know that. That's true from the whaling days. Why do we get so focused to say, oh, we got to prove the whale? Hey, bottom line is whatever fish it was, it was a miracle. It was a huge miracle. God isn't focused on the fish. We're to be focused on the God who created the miracle. But let me just highlight this for you. The, the whale, it's a big fish. That's what we know. We know as well that it's a miracle because God had this big fish. God came, had to come at the right moment, just when Jonah gets thrown overboard, the shows, it shows up. It swallows Jonah and doesn't digest him. You know, the idea that he's able to breathe, I don't get it. I don't know how that worked. I don't know what scuba gear was provided. It doesn't make any difference. It's a miracle God provided this fish who provides him free transport across the Mediterranean all the way to Nineveh and spits him out at the right spot at the right moment. So it's a miracle. Why do we need to discuss any more about that? Let's discuss the real hero of the story. Let's discuss God. I mean, we're supposed to be here worshiping him this morning. He's supposed to be the focus, so let's talk about him from Jonah. You have all kinds of displays of God throughout the book. Four chapters, four small chapters, and it's all about God. God is the big character because it's just displayed. His power is amazing through this book. Now, I'm going to read it in a moment, but let me just give you the cursory thought ahead of time. God sends a storm. At the right moment where Jonah is going, God deals with him in a very special way. He sends, he sends him to this town of Nineveh that God could destroy at a moment's notice, but God gives him 40 days to repent. God provides this gourd that comes up and, and it's there for Jonah to get comfort and then God sends the heat-beating sun and he sends the wind. Our God is amazing how he controls nature and even the hearts of people. God's sovereignty, God's greatness, just his power just manifests off the page. If you're going to talk about Jonah, you're going to teach us to the kids. Talk about God's awareness. 
Don't talk about the fish. Talk about God. Talk about God knowing everything. That he knew the hearts of Nineveh. He knew what was going on in that city that was filled with all kinds of decadence. Talk about God's awareness that he knows exactly where Jonah ran off to when Jonah tries to go hundreds of miles the opposite direction. Talk about God's awareness that he knows what's in Jonah's heart and what he thinks about other people. Just like God knows what you think about other people. How you feel about the co-worker. How you feel about those who are of a Muslim, a Muslim religious worship. How you feel about people of different, different ethnicities. Talk about God's awareness of the heart of the believer. When you're going to teach this story, talk about, if you're going to talk about anything, talk about God's mercy. The story is flooding with, overflowing. It's a sea of mercy, mercy, mercy by God. Mercy motivate us. Mercy that ought to change us. The mercy of God. In fact, if I were to take the four chapters and reassign the chapter headings instead of one, two, three, four, I would reassign three chapter headings and I would base it upon three different thoughts of God's mercy. I would make chapter one just the first two verses and it would read this. Because of God's mercy, God's people are to be faithful witnesses to all kinds of people. You read that in chapter 1 when you open up the book and you start with Jonah chapter 1 and you read the first couple verses you've got. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Mercy. Mercy of God shown to this city of Nineveh. Now, if you know anything about Nineveh, the Old Testament, it was the capital of a nation that Jonah would not have liked. It's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It says in this verse that God wants them to preach, be preached to. He hadn't, they aren't Jewish. He hadn't sent prophets before. Oh, I take that back. He sent Nahum, Nahum to preach against the city to say it was going to be destroyed, to condemn it. But he wanted them to repent. He's going to give them an opportunity to repent. Why? Because the New Testament says this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, including the Ninevites. Well, the Ninevites city of, of uh, the city of Nineveh, Nineveh with the Ninevites there, he describes as wicked people, and they were. Now, these people had a phenomenal city. The city would have been about the size of Lebanon as far as acreage. The walls on it are double-walled. They're huge. The city has some 50 miles of aqueducts, according to historical reliefs. We know that this town had hanging gardens. It was considered one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient empire, but wicked, wicked and horrible and off. They worship Marduk. They worshiped and adopted some of the sun god worship. They would literally sacrifice their babies to their gods. Wicked, wicked people. They would go in and they would conquer other peoples, strip their temples, strip the peoples bare, and were just, they were, they were vicious, vicious folk. They want to make sure you wouldn't rebel. So they would come to your town, whether it be Myerstown or Palmyra, Anvil, Lebanon, they would come to your town and they would ransack your town. And then they typically took anywhere from a third to a half of the citizens and they would flay them alive skin them alive and leave, their, leave them when they expired, leave them posted around the, on the walls of the, to, of the town or, uh, or in the streets so as to scare the rest of us not to revolt. And by the way, it worked. These people were just horrible, horrible, selfish people given to indulgences and God said their wickedness comes up against me. Go and preach against them. 
What we have here is this peoples that God wants to extend mercy to. You, you say, well, he didn't say about mercy. Yes, he did. Read in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4 and look what Jonah says. Jonah said right away, he says, okay, Lord, I knew, I knew that when I went, to look at the middle of chapter 4, verse 2, middle of verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and you would repent of this evil that you predicted against the city. I said that at the beginning. You're a merciful God. You're sending me to these people, these people that are wicked people. Why would you want to forgive them? They are so vile. They are so uncouth. They are so uncivilized. They are so mean and greedy and and they're just vicious, vicious people. In fact, they're my enemies, Jonah would say. They have already invaded my land. We know of at least two occasions by this time that they have invaded Israel. They have been threatening Israel. In fact, they have conquered to the degree, this sense, that they are exacting tribute money every year that has to be paid by Jonah's hometown regions to the Assyrians. These are their not occupying captors or, or masters, but they are close to it. They are his enemies. Now, I know Sight and Sound has developed a story that in some way that they have made it, made it where Jonah is trying to show his personal angst against him. They've tied in part of that story about some of the raids and the attacks that we know historically happened. They portrayed it that, that Jonah's own father was killed in one of those raids. We don't know that for a fact, but we know that they came into the territory. We know that they raided. We know that Jonah would be uncomfortable going to them. This would be like you going to ISIS. You going to some of those regions of the world that you would be uncomfortable. You would be a threat. You're a Westerner. You're white looking. You don't fit in. You're, you would go and say their culture is different. They eat weird food. They do weird stuff. They beat their wives and they, they, would, they would throw like my brother's case when they were in one region in the Middle East. One father threw his child out in front of the bus because he wanted to get compensated. And you would say, well, how would somebody do that? Why would they do it? You and I would say, that person doesn't deserve mercy. Yeah, 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 God does. God sends mercy to somebody like this. This is like God telling you and me to go and witness to a child molester. Go and witness to somebody who's abused their spouse. Go and witness to somebody who is cruel and corrupt. The mercy of God. The grace of God to extend His Word to people who you and I don't, don't think they, they fit our style. No matter what sins, no matter what the past, no matter what a person's background, no matter how unlike the us they are, no matter what they've done, God wants us to be a witness to share the Word of God, to give it out, to, to lend it out, to, to give it to other people. That's mercy. That is God's mercy being extended. And by the way, you want to see a real picture of mercy? Hold up the mirror to yourself this morning. That God would allow you to hear the gospel. That God would give you and me a chance to be able to be born again. That God would look down upon us who we think a little bit too much of ourselves like the Ninevites. We get successful. We get powerful. We sometimes think that we've got it together. No, the mercies of God. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 would be the mercies of God that calls upon you and me to be a witness to all people. But let's take it a step further. I'd add a new, another chapter that would say this. Because of God's mercy, God's people can make a big difference when they share the word of God. The mercies of God shown to the believer to use him. Now, the, moral, the ending of the story, I'm sorry, 
the highlight of the story is we would count it in, the, in our happy ever after endings would be that Jonah ends up going to the city and preaching and the entire city repents. We'll get to that in a moment. But that's not how it started. When Jonah first hears, Jonah doesn't listen. Jonah decides he's not going to obey God and yet God will end up using him. No matter what he does, no matter how far he goes, God in mercy will use the backslider who comes to repentance. Jonah's story goes this way. He hears from God, verses 1 and 2. And then verse 3, it says, Jonah arose to flee. I left out one word, an important word at the beginning of verse 3. It's a but. That's unfortunate when you get these buts in the word of God. When all of a sudden God says one thing, but the believer does something different. Well, Jonah does something different. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa. To get a sense of what we're talking about, God is sending him to Nineveh on the far side, the east side of the Mediterranean. Look at where Tarshish is. It's the Gibraltar area. He is going to go opposite. And, and again, understand at this time, this is their known world. He is going to go to the opposite ends of the world to get away from the Ninevites. So he goes to Joppa. It's going to be a costly trip. You are going sightseeing a long way. You've got to get to where only the Phoenicians were traveling at this point for the most part. So he's going to pay and invest a lot of funds to get there. And so he runs from, this, from the Lord. He pays the fare and he went down to go with them. From the presence of the Lord is the emphasis at the end of verse 3. Isn't that interesting? He is running from the presence of the Lord. Did you mark in there? How dumb can you get? How dumb can you get? Really? What does the psalmist say? If I rise to the mountaintops or I go to the depths to the lowest grave, you are with me, you see me. Here's Jonah. He's running. Now, why did he run? There's, there's multiple reasons. There's all kinds of possibilities. The possibilities are very simple. He hates the Ninevites. He's a prophet. By the way, he already is a prophet. He's already been preaching in Israel, according to 1 Kings 14. If he goes there, he's going to be going to the enemies. Maybe his family would be mad at him. Maybe they would consider him a traitor. He, we don't know other than he just doesn't want to go. And he's going to go the opposite direction. And when he goes, he gets on board the ship. But we have another button, verse 4. But Jonah, but now, but the Lord. By the way, do you get the point? They're in conflict. The hero here in the story, the antagonist and protagonist, nothing to do with the fish. It's God against Jonah. They're having a fight. The Lord sends out a great wind under the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so the ship was likely to be broken. So bad that the mariners, the seamen who traveled this route frequently, they're afraid. They cried to every man unto his God. They cast forth the wares of the ship. But Jonah goes down in the sides of the ship. Now this is the part that just absolutely blows me away. It says at the end of verse 5, he lay down and was... Really? You ever been on a ship that's in a storm? I've not been there. I've been on a ship that's been on a non-stormy sea and I've gotten sick. Okay, here he is going down, huge storm, a lot of commotion, and he's sleeping. Maybe he has sleep apnea. Maybe that's his issue. Or maybe his issue is he's just calloused. He is so calloused, he doesn't care. I don't care what happens to other people and I've gotten away from the Lord and therefore I don't care what happens to me. I just don't care. 
I don't care anymore. To the point that when the others are praying, that they say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The shipmaster comes to him and says, what are you doing, sleepyhead? Arise, call upon your God, if so be that your God will think upon us and we perish not. What are you doing, man? At least help us out. We're all praying. What are you doing? And Jonah is just ignoring God. He's not even praying. His life is, at, is in threatened, and he's not even concerned. Talk about hard-hearted, callous. It would be like sitting in a church service and not listening and not caring and just, I don't care, I'm going to go to sleep and slumber in my spirit and not listen to the Word of God. You've never been there. I have. I have. I've come to the point at a moment in my life as a young person that it was like, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do my own thing. And thank God that God sent a storm into my life to get my attention and somebody cared enough to talk to me and to mentor me and to get me out of that complacency. But talk about calloused. This guy gets so callous. Here's the irony of this story. I mean, there's so many that just, it just absolutely, I'm going to use the phrase again, it blows me away, there's certain things that happen. They said, they cast lots, verse 7, and the lot falls upon Jonah. And they said, tell us, we pray thee, why, why this evil has come upon us? What did you do? What's your occupation? Where's your country? How come we're in a storm and it looks like you're the reason that we're going to die? He says to them, look at, look at, he's supposed to be a witness. Look at verse 9. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Jehovah, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. Did you catch something? He's giving some type of a witness to these unbelievers. But it doesn't really make a difference because he's such a hypocrite. Oh yeah, he's speaking theological terms that I, and he says, oh, I, I believe in. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Really, Jonah? Do you really fear God? If you feared God, you would have... You would have listened to God. You would have obeyed God. You are giving a Sunday morning's pious platitudes. You are talking about Christianity. You are pretending about Christianity. You really don't believe in your heart that it's made a difference, Jonah. Talk about an irony. Oh, but I am being a witness. I am. I'm, I'm sharing some, some facts, even though I don't feel it, even though it doesn't motivate me. But, but I'm... I, I'm signing the creed. I'm signing the doctrinal statement. What a hypocrite. What a, what a downright hypocrite. The irony of the story. This guy thinks he's being a witness when he is walking away from the Lord. You want to see irony? Jonas says to them, hey, here's what you guys got to do. He says, you know, the men are afraid. Why have you done this? They knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. And what shall we do that the sea may be calm? He says to them, verse 12, take me up, cast me forth into the sea. The sea will then be calm, for I know that my, for my sake this great tempest has come aboard, come upon you. Here he is, Jonah, the prophet of God, which he is, he's a prophet. The prophet of God who is disobeying God. Boy, is he sounding magnanimous. Take my life, guys. Throw me overboard. If you, if you care for your lives, you got to throw me down in the depths of the sea and your lives will be spared. Jonah, if you really cared for people, if you really meant it, you would do two things. You would jump overboard yourself. Not? If you really cared about these guys and you knew you were the problem, throw yourself overboard. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to me it is that people who walk away from the Lord want to appear all kinds of macho 
and all kinds of bravado. I'm brave. I can just, I can do what I want. It's my life. I can live it my own way. Cowards. Real boldness is found in serving Christ, not running from Him. Real boldness is standing for the Lord and sharing the Word of God. You want to be brave? You want to be a real macho person? Then go out and witness to your friends. Have the boldness to take the tracks, to go out and to proclaim your faith. Have the boldness to declare Christ by being baptized. That's boldness. That's strength. But the macho backslider stands there and says, I'm a tough guy. Well, if you're so tough, why are you making other people throw you overboard? Why are you saying that they've got to take the responsibility? Look at, look at the story. These guys, they say, they say well, no, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to throw you overboard. Look at verse 14. We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't lay his blood upon our innocent blood. For, Lord, you have done as you please. They took him up. They're afraid to throw him overboard because they don't want to take his life, even though it means the salvage of their own. Yeah, hey, by the way, should I show you real irony? The unbelievers do more to try to save the backslidden Christian than the Christian does to help them out. Isn't that amazing? They care so much about this guy who doesn't care diddly about them. They try to rescue him. It says they rode. They, they, tried to, they tried to get to land, verse 13. They put great effort in trying to rescue his life. The unbeliever, there's no effort. There's no prayer. I mean, the believer. The bachelor believer, no prayer. There's no desire. You, you guys got to throw me overboard. You've you got to do all the work. You've got to take all the responsibility. Oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. Really? Really? These guys are trying to save you. They're putting their lives at risk. But, by the way, me in my sinful flesh, if Jonah had told me, if I'd seen Jonah sleep in there, and Jonah had said, it's my fault, I don't know if I wouldn't want to have killed him in the first place. Not? I mean, crying out loud, you're sleeping while the rest of us are dying. What kind of wasted bag of skin are you? Come on, man. We're, we're, we're stuck here. Do something. Help us out. And he's sleeping. And then, then when they find out he is responsible and he doesn't care about them enough to climb overboard, they do everything they can to rescue this guy. Pray tell it's never told of us that the unbelievers around us have more care and compassion than we do. Pray tell that it's never said about you or me that they will work harder to defend and to help us out of trials than you would do in sharing the gospel. Pray tell that it's never said about you that your unsaved people, friends, relatives, worship more fervently than you do. And they don't even know the truth. Here this backslidden guy is. God has, is dealing with him, trying to get him going. So what happens is they finally throw him overboard. They throw him overboard and here's mercy. Here's mercy. If you were God dealing with the Jonah, would you just say, oh, bye. No, here's mercy. Jonah is all it says. It says in verse 17, uh, mercy, folk, mercy. The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Okay? And it says, and Jonah's in the belly. Me? Me? And I would put, and he digested him. And Jonah was no more. 
there's mercy. 17 is loaded, overflowing. The belly is just gushing out with mercy, mercy, mercy. And you know what the funny part is? Now, now Jonah repents. Only when he's finally thrown overboard. Why doesn't he repent before that? Maybe he's like us. Maybe he's like, well, I still haven't gotten into the water. It's still a chance. Maybe I'll just wait until it gets really bad. Well, now it gets really bad. And it gets so bad that he ends up in the belly of the whale and he repents. Jonah prayed unto the Lord. Finally, he prays. Maybe it's the gastric juices, the smell. Maybe it's the darkness. Maybe it's the gurgling of the other fish. I don't know. That gets, whatever it is, it gets to him. And he prays and he says, I cried by reason of my own affliction unto the Lord. He heard me out of the belly of this hell. Cried I and you heard my voice. And I said, verse 4, I am cast out of your sight, and yet I will look again toward your holy temple. These waters have compassed round about me. I'm at the bottom, he says. And he says in verse 7, when my soul fainted me within me, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came unto him. And he goes on, he says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. He repents. You know, mercy is all around chapter 2. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy again, chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spakes to the fish and it puked him out upon the dry... Oh, I'm sorry. I should have read it right. It vomited him out upon the dry land. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy that God would, would allow him to get this far. But then chapter 3 continues with a, probably one of the most precious verses in Scripture. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah... What do you have? The second time. In other words, I'm still going to use you. I still want to use you. I still haven't put you on the shelf. For as calloused as you became, as hypocritical as you came, you became, I'm going to use you. Jonah, I want to use you. Go into the city, Jonah, and preach. Arise, go in that great city, preach unto it the preaching that I have bid thee. Jonah arose, went into Nineveh according to the word. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, crying, yet 40 days, 40 days, and the city's going to be destroyed. The people believed, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to them to the least. Amazing amazing that God would use him. The entire city repents. Do you realize what we've got? You go down to verse 11 of chapter 4 and it gives you an idea that you got 120,000 who aren't able to figure out left and right hand. Probably too young. You got a city that's at least 600,000 or more and they all repented. It's amazing where it makes this comment. The, king, the word came in verse 6 of chapter 3 to the king. He arose. He laid his robe from him. He covered himself in sackcloth and satin ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed by decree of the king. Let neither man nor beast nor herd of the flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water but let everyone cry mightily unto God. Let them turn everyone from his evil way. Do you realize this king is God? He's a God in his country. He's divine, but he is broken. He's responded to the preaching. He is, he is the leader of their religious system. He grew up with it. He is, in, he is enchanted with it. He is, he is elevated in it. His whole life is this false religion. He hears the word of God. He repents and changes. Don't tell me God's word is not effective. Don't tell me God can't use a backslidden, repentant Christian. 
God uses Jonah to bring this entire city to its knees. Despite his own rebellion, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That not only saved a wretch like me, but then uses us. Amazing. Amazing that God would do it. Have you ever, have you ever rebelled against the Lord? Have you ever gotten away from the Lord, but then God showed you mercy? You know what should happen? You should realize that it is never too late to get right with God. If you are one of those people right now, that here you are, you sit in church, you, you come on a regular basis, but you ignore the Lord. You ignore being a witness. You are more involved with doing your own thing. You want to be the macho man, woman, and just kind of defy the Lord. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait until God has to send a storm into your life that God has to send a great fish. You repent and watch what God can do with you. How God can take you and let you be an impact upon your classmates, your co-workers, your relatives. Don't say as an excuse from serving God, well, I'm not this, I'm not that. You serve a phenomenal God who can use anybody who's repentant, who wants to be used by God. God will take you, use you, and make a big, big difference that's amazing grace. Just the grace of God that God wants to reach other people. The grace of God that he would use us, people like me, like you, to help make a difference in their life. That's amazing grace. That's mercy. That mercy ought to motivate us to say, Lord, I want to serve you. Now that should be the end of the book according to our happily ever after thoughts. The city is repenting. This whole God sees their work, verse 10 of chapter 3. And God repents of the destruction, and God says, I'm going to let them go because they've repented. That's where we would put the end, they live happily ever after. But God puts chapter 4 there. Why? Because the story, the, the, the real plot is still going. The real conflict is still engaging. The real issue here, it's not the whale, it's not just the Ninevites, the real issue is God and Jonah the believer in God, how they are having an ongoing knockout, drag-out fight. The believer had rebelled. He had run. He had become lethargic. He repented. God used him. But all of a sudden, the enthusiasm of the occasion wanes away. And two, three weeks after camp, all of a sudden, after the revival meetings have passed, all of a sudden, a few months after the last missions conference, all of a sudden he finds himself back where he was. The same old, same old. He finds himself not really caring about the Ninevites. Oh yeah, they've, he's preached, and oh yeah, they've responded, but the real lesson of mercy is chapter 4. The highlight of the story is chapter 4. The highlight is this, that God in his mercy teaches us that God's people are to keep on loving as God loves and that's chapter 4. That's what God is going to try to get across to Noah, uh, Jonah. He's going to try to get him to realize that you are to love as I love, ongoing, ongoing. Keep it up. Keep it up. Here's what happens. Chapter 4, Jonah's preached. The time is up. The buzzer is buzzed. The classes are let loose. It's time for everybody to close up shop. The Bibles are closing. Prayer is coming. The invitation's given. And we're out of here and headed for the meal. Jonah's all done. Jonah walks out of the city, goes and sits up on the mountain looking over the city, and it says, verse 1 of chapter 4, he's ticked. That's 2017. The old King James, it displeased, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
He was very angry. Why? Hmm. I pray thee, O Lord, wasn't this what I told you when I was yet in my country? Isn't that why I fled before unto Tarshish? I knew, I knew it. I knew you would graciously forgive these people. You'd be merciful. You'd be slow to anger. You would, of your, of your great kindness, you would then give them forgiveness. I knew this was you. You wouldn't burn them the way you said you would. How can, how can a believer be so angry with God? How is that possible? That he's upset that God gives mercy. I don't know. I've only seen it once. When we first started this church back in 79, we had one individual come to us who was an officer at that time and said, something's wrong in this church. We're getting too many people saved. Something's wrong. We got to stop this. He was no longer an officer within the week. How can some believer think that way? I don't know. I don't know how somebody can come and say, we talk too much about missions. We're too concerned about the world. How can somebody say we raise too much money to invest in missions? How? How can you possibly say, well, too many of the classmates are getting born again. Too much revival going on here. How? Well, Jonah is a classic illustration that can happen to the best of us. A prophet. One who goes out and preaches. Maybe he's upset because his reputation is at stake. Now, let's give Jonah a little bit of a, a, little bit of a window for two minutes here. Let's give him a window of why he would think this way. He's, a rep he's got a reputation as a prophet. He's sent as a prophet. Prophets, when they, were, when they came, the criteria of a prophet, to know he was a prophet sent of God, was what he said would come to pass. Well, I said destruction was coming in 40 days. What's that going to do to my degree and credentials if there's no destruction? They're going to think I'm a false prophet. What's this going to do amongst my reputation of the fellow Jews? Now think about this. If Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, you're damned, you're doomed, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days, and they were, he goes home as a what? He's a hero. He's a hero. He was involved with the destruction of their mortal enemy. But he goes there, he preaches, they repent, God blesses him, now what does he go home as? Suspicious as a traitor? He's reaching out to those people? He's a whatever, lover? You know, here's this Jonah. He just doesn't like Assyrians. He just hates them. So when he sees that God won't destroy him, he's really ticked. So God instead... God talks to him and says, in verse 4, this is the question of questions. Are you in your, is it right for you to be angry? Do you do well? Is this really pleasing? Is this proper for you to be angry? So to give Jonah an object lesson, it says Jonah's outside the city. He sat on the east side. He made himself a little booth, sat in the shadow till he might see what would become the city. Please, God, wipe him out. God prepared a gourd. It's one of those weeds that grows. You know the ones that you've got in your yard? You can't get the grass to grow, but the weeds do. You have any of those in your yard? I've got a, I've got a couple of them. You know, everything else is kind of I've got a water manicure. You've got to go out there and talk to it to get it to grow. But this one little tree that I don't want, it's the biggest thing in the yard. 
and it's spreading, and it's what, well, God provided, provided a gourd that just grew rapidly. It's like a weed. It's there. It's, oh man, it's kind of cool in his case. That it provided shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was glad for the gourd. He's excited. I'm thrilled by the gourd. But, there we go with another but in verse 7. God prepared a worm when the morning, I'm going to ask God to do that with that tree in my yard. God prepared a worm when the next morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd and it withered. It came to pass when the sun did rise, God prepared a really strong east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself. Now Jonah's done this a couple times. If you go back to verse 3, I want to die. I didn't get my way, I want to die. Now you have in verse 8, I want to die. It's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you really, do you do well? He asked him second time. Do you really do well being angry? Uh, he says, I'm, I'm in my perfect right to be angry over the loss of this gourd. This is so silly and yet so common. Jonah is so excited about this gourd. He's comfortable and as long as he's comfortable, things are good. But when all of a sudden his comfort is taken away, he becomes very angry with God. And he gets really ticked with God because he's lost his comfort to the point that my car isn't running. I want to die because I have to walk. My credit card has just been canceled. Oh, I want to die. My phone isn't working. Oh. He's, he's just, he's got all the comfort that he needs, that he wants, and he's He's so focused on his comfort and he's so mad that his life becomes uncomfortable at this moment. And God says, Jonah, you are so concerned about a gourd, a dumb gourd that isn't supposed to last a long time anyway. But that's your focus is the gourd. What about souls? What about souls? You want the souls to just be let alone, to be damned. Because you're so focused on your gourd. That's the highlight of the story. That's the point of the story. Believers get caught up in gourds of this time and of this age, and they forget about souls. They don't care about souls. And he says, you're wrong. You care more about stuff than souls. Jonah, it's wrong. You're to love as I loved. Constantly, continuously, universally. I've showed you such mercy. But you're so caught up with your gourd. I, I gave you the gourd. I, I was kind enough to give you your house, your car. I was kind enough to give you your bank account. I was kind enough to give you your job, your vacation. I was kind enough to give you your video games. I was kind enough to give you your cell phone. I was kind enough to give you all those things. I was kind enough to give you a free pass to Hershey. I was kind enough to give you a food on your table. I was kind enough to give you an IRA account. I was kind enough to give you a pension plan. But that's become your focus. So focused on that stuff, you don't have time for a lost soul. You would just as soon sit back, sit by, and worry about your comfort and let them be damned and go to hell. Jonah, you're wrong. You're wrong. You do not love the way I love. 
What happens next? Oh, wait. We don't know. We don't know. Jonah, Jonah, do you well, do you do well being angry for the gourd? Jonah, I do well. I'm I'm right. God says, You have no pity. You have pity and no pity on the gourd. You didn't even labor for it. And he says, Should I not spare this city? Shouldn't I spare all those people? And then what? We don't know. We don't know what Jonah did. We don't know anything more than that. It's leaving us hang to just say, Jonah had to make a decision. To love as God love or to continue to be focused on his own comfort. It leaves us at a spot that says, okay, what next? We, we got to apply it to our, our hearts. We got to ask ourselves some questions. We got to say, wait a minute. This story of mercy says this to you and me. If you are here and are not saved, you are not a believer, you are not on your way to heaven, you need to realize that like the Ninevites, no matter what you've done in the past, God can forgive you. No matter what your record is, with courts or with family or with schools, makes no difference. God wants to forgive you and give you mercy. We need to realize that if we're saved, we've got to come to a decision here this morning. Do I believe that God has called me to be a witness to people of all nations? Now, maybe for some, a particular nation. Maybe for the rest of us, all nations. By trying to contribute, to pray, to get involved with trying to get the gospel. Even the unlovely nations of the world that are not like us. That's a decision we have to make. Do we believe that? Not just here, I fear God, and I'm running from God, but here, I believe it, I'm going to make it, let it sink in and make a part of my life. If we're saved, we've got to examine our hearts this morning and say, am I callous to God? Have you become so callous that in the middle of your, in your storms, you still aren't praying? You're fast asleep as the Word of God has come to you and told you to make some changes, to do some things, but you're sound asleep in the bottom of your boat and saying, let others worry about it. Have you become that, that crass to the Lord that you're here this morning and saying, I fear God, I fear God, but there's no time for the Lord, there's no obedience to the Lord, there's no sensitivity to the Lord if so, you need to repent before God sends a storm and a big fish into your life. Here's the criteria for the majority. We've got to examine our love for the lost. Seriously examine. We say we love the lost. We say we care that they don't go to hell. We are concerned on creed, on paper, but what about inaction? Here's what you and I have to re-examine this morning. As we go into missions month, has our love for the lost grown or is it going by the wayside? Are we like a Jonah? We get involved, we preach for a short period of time, and then, okay, we don't care anymore. Two, three, four weeks later, months later. We need to examine ourselves and honestly, and this is the big question this morning, are you more concerned about the gourds that God has given you than souls? Are you more concerned about the house, the car, the job, the bank account, the sports game, the trophies, the district championship than some souls? Are you more concerned about the deadline at work than some souls? 
We need to be concerned about all those things. But we need to understand those are temporary. The souls are permanent. The classmates, the co-workers, the relatives, the peoples in our town, the peoples outside our towns, they are real even after 100 years from now. In a 1,000 years from now, they are the real thing. The cars will be forgotten. The houses will be a distant memory. Those grades, the reports, the, 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 the papers, the diplomas, they're going to be a memory. They will fade. The gourds are not lasting. But they get too much focus. They get to a point where they become our comfort, our comfort, our comfort, and what about souls? To the point that we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to let go of the gourd and to share the word with the Ninevites that God has put into our hearts, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our lives? You're going to be challenged with this tonight. Tonight as we talk about a reach ministry, an endeavor that we do for the next three months to reach into our community, you have a choice. The gourd of TV, the gourd of recreations, the gourd of whatever you're going to do or concern for lost souls. How can I get involved with reaching the Ninevites that we live amongst? Leading the point, let me take it a step further. Are you willing to sacrifice to reach? Willing to sacrifice time, effort, your own, your own contribution of going, writing, seeing, whatever the opportunities Pastor Travis will share with you. What about your sharing, your, your sacrifice? We, in three weeks, we're going to do our sacrificial Sunday that you as a church adopted last week, 220000 I can be so concerned about my gourds or I can focus some of that concern to be consistent with God's mercy and to say, what about the lost? What about the lost? What about some sacrifices I can make? What about some of the pizzas we can give up? What about some of the, some of the movies we can forego so as to take that same money invested in missions, which will last? What about not necessarily upgrading again, to another plan, but to say this year that upgrade is going to go to helping some souls to hear the gospel. Sacrifice. Like Jonah, we need to be in chapter 2. We need to thank God for his mercy. There is no doubt about it. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. But we remember this. We have a debt when we have been forgiven. Do you remember the parable Jesus told about the man who was forgiven such great debt? But he turned around and went out and he held accountable people who owed him a lesser amount. And he says, you were a debtor. You who have been given mercy are in debt to extend mercy. Not just in forgiving people, but sharing forgiveness with people. You and I are debtors. If we're born again, we owe it to others to give out the gospel. We owe it to others to get involved with reach or other types of ministries, to take some tracks. We owe it to bring some young teens with you to a final Friday. We owe it to the world. We owe it to Christ. He has done so much. And I said that the story ends. The story is all wrapped up. So if your story ended right now at this moment like Jonah's did, all of a sudden it stopped. What's the ending? Does it show you do something or you just walk out 
and there's nothing more. You've done your duty. We've done our Sunday thing, but nothing changes. Or do you say, I want a different ending. I want some closure here that I'm going to make some decisions this morning. I'm going to do something. And it's going to be like tonight, sign up for reach. It's going to be like take some tracks. It's going to be like try to reach out for other people. It's going to be like getting involved with missions, making plans for this next month with a missions focus. I want something more than Jonah's ending of just, I want to please the master who has shown me such mercy.